Welcome to the September 28th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the role of IL-7 receptor signaling in the differentiation and expansion of human B-cell progenitors. Discuss the use of fixed-duration venetoclax plus obinutuzumab in older patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And learn how low-density lipoprotein promotes microvascular thrombosis by enhancing von Willebrand factor self-association. We first examine data in the blood article entitled IL-7 receptor signaling drives human B-cell progenitor differentiation and expansion by Fabian Kaiser from Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and colleagues. IL-7 signaling takes place via the IL-7 receptor, which consists of the IL-7 receptor alpha chain and the common gamma chain. Studies to date have demonstrated that IL-7 signaling is essential for B-cell lymphopoiesis in mice, namely, Mice that lack IL-7 signaling fail to develop T and B-cell lymphocytes. However, findings from mouse studies do not translate into humans. In humans, IL-7 receptor alpha chain deficiency manifests as T-, B+, NK+, severe combined immunodeficiency, and patients with deleterious mutations in the IL-7 receptor alpha chain still develop B-cells in peripheral blood. Research has shown that many IL-7 receptor alpha-deficient patients with recipient B lymphocytes do not need immunoglobulin replacement after donor stem cell infusion. Other studies in humans have found that constitutively active IL-7 receptor signaling leads to B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, indicating that IL-7 may play a role in human B lymphopoiesis after all. However, firm evidence about the role of IL-7 in human B lymphopoiesis is lacking. As a consequence, T-minus B-plus skid patients with deficits in IL-7 signaling typically do not undergo chemotherapeutic conditioning before hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, since early B-cell progenitors in these patients do not have to be eradicated to acquire full humoral immunocompetence. To better understand the role of IL-7 in human lymphopoiesis, in the current study, the authors conducted a series of flow cytometry and single-cell RNA sequencing experiments in bone marrow samples of IL-7 receptor alpha-chain deficient patients and healthy controls. In addition, they performed in vitro differentiation of B lymphocytes using bone marrow samples of healthy male donors to define various B-cell progenitor populations. Flow cytometry experiments in bone marrow samples of two patients with deleterious mutations in the IL-7 receptor alpha chain found that IL-7 receptor alpha deficiency impairs the differentiation and expansion of early B-cell progenitors compared to healthy controls. In addition, single-cell RNA sequencing experiments revealed aberrant differentiation of early bone marrow progenitors in patients deficient for the IL-7 receptor alpha. In the absence of IL-7, the authors observed lower absolute cell counts on days 14 and 21. Additional experiments 
confirmed that IL-7 drives the proliferation and expansion of early B-cell progenitors without significantly affecting the proliferation of pre-B2 large cells. Interestingly, IL-7 had a limited role in the prevention of programmed cell death in early B-cell progenitors, since there was no difference in cell death between IL-7-treated and untreated cultures in vitro. The authors next investigated the expression of EBF1 and PAX5 in early B-cell progenitors and found higher expression of both transcription factors in healthy controls compared to IL-7 receptor alpha-deficient patients. This expression coincided with the expression of another transcription factor, BAC2, which together with EBF1 and PAX5 orchestrates the differentiation of early B-cell progenitors. Thus, IL-7 plays a crucial role in promoting B-lymphoid fate in humans by enhancing BAC2, EBF1, and PAX5 expression and inducing proliferation of early B-cell progenitors up to the pre-B2 large cell stage. This raises important concerns regarding the immunocompetence of IL-7 receptor alpha-deficient patients with autologous B-cell progenitors post-stem cell transplantation. In an accompanying commentary, Andrew Jennery from Newcastle University in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Great Britain, notes that the study by Kaiser and colleagues advances our understanding of the role of IL-7 signaling in human B lymphopoiesis. The authors successfully demonstrate that IL-7 signaling induces proliferation of early B lymphocyte progenitors and increases the expression of transcription factors EBF1 and PAX5, which are critical for B lymphocyte specification and commitment. They further demonstrate that the clonality of the patient's IgH repertoire is increased, probably due to the establishment of a significant and diverse early B lymphocyte progenitor pool, which requires IL-7 for expansion. The authors hypothesize that early B-cell progenitors underwent rapid IgH recombination and impaired proliferation in the absence of IL-7R signaling, which in turn led to a smaller pool of cells with diverse IgH alleles and restricted final B-lymphocyte receptor repertoire. Jennery concludes that, in the future, large cohort studies should examine the B lymphocyte function of patients who receive conditioning versus patients who do not receive conditioning prior to hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. In addition, future studies should explore the long-term effect of autologous IL-7R alpha-deficient early B lymphocyte progenitors on humoral immunity. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Fixed Duration Venetoclax Plus Obinutuzumab Improves Quality of Life and Geriatric Impairments in FCR Unfit CLL Patients by Lena van der Straten from Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and colleagues. Geriatric assessments consist of a multidisciplinary evaluation of medical, psychosocial, and functional impairments aimed at identifying suitable targeted interventions in older patients with cancer. Although geriatric assessments are recommended by the International Society of Geriatric Oncology, they are not routinely performed in cancer patients. Patients between the ages of 70 and 80 and those over 80 are at greater risk of developing chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 
Over the past decade, new targeted approaches were developed for older patients with CLL who, due to coexisting comorbidities, cannot tolerate intensive chemoimmunotherapy with fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. Experts agree that the main goal of therapy among older CLL patients should be preserving good function and quality of life for the remainder of their lives. However, studies of geriatric assessments and health-related quality of life in older adults with CLL treated with novel therapies are lacking. To address this knowledge gap in the current study, the authors report on geriatric assessments and health-related quality of life evaluations in patients with previously untreated symptomatic CLL enrolled on the HOVON-139 GIVE trial. This trial is the first trial to comprehensively examine geriatric assessments and frailty of elderly patients with CLL treated with targeted therapy. The multicenter parallel group phase two study enrolled 67 patients with CLL. The median patient age was 71 years. Study treatment consisted of three phases, pre-induction with two cycles of intravenous obinutuzumab monotherapy, induction with 12 cycles, fixed-duration venetoclax and obinutuzumab, and consolidation with either fixed 12 cycles of oral venetoclax or minimal residual disease, or MRD, guided venetoclax until undetectable MRD was reached, or for a maximum of 12 cycles. 67 patients received pre-induction, followed by induction venetoclax and obinutuzumab, but five discontinued the study prior to randomization. The remaining 62 patients were randomly assigned to two arms. In the first arm, 32 patients received 12 cycles of fixed-duration venetoclax consolidation, and in the second arm, 30 patients received MRD-guided venetoclax consolidation. In the MRD-guided venetoclax consolidation arm, 93% of patients did not receive any consolidation due to undetectable MRD. Geriatric assessments were performed according to established criteria of the Charlson Comorbidity Index, the CATS Activity of Daily Living, the Lawton Instrumental Activity of Daily Living, the Geriatric Depression Scale 15, the Mini Nutritional Assessment Short Form, and the Mini Mental State Evaluation to assess the impact of geriatric assessment on treatment outcomes and the patient's health-related quality of life. Patient-reported outcomes were collected, including function, cognition, nutrition, depression, physical performance, muscle parameters, comorbidities, and the European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer C30 and CLL17 questionnaires. The median number of geriatric impairments at baseline was two. Overall, one or more geriatric impairments were present in more than 90% of the patients, and 60% of patients had two or more geriatric impairments. The most common impairments included those in gait speed, nutrition, depression, muscle mass, grip strength, and muscle density. The cumulative incidence of grade three or higher adverse events was higher in patients who had two or more geriatric impairments compared to those with only one or no geriatric impairments. Specifically, the rate of non-hematological adverse events between these two groups was 70% compared to 34% respectively. Over the course of treatment, 
there was a significant decline in the number of geriatric impairments and clinically relevant improvements in health-related quality of life subscales were reached for global health status, role functioning, physical functioning, emotional functioning, fatigue, dyspnea, physical condition and fatigue, and worries and fears related to health and functioning. These improvements were similar in patients receiving venetoclax consolidation and patients who discontinued treatment based on MRD negativity. In an accompanying commentary, Valentin Gode from the St. Marianne Hospital in Cologne, Germany, highlights the main finding from the study by van der Straten and colleagues, namely that frailty in elderly patients with CLL is likely to improve with targeted drug therapy. Furthermore, study results challenge the established practice of de-escalating therapy in cases of increased frailty, namely, despite poorer tolerability of the treatment, patients with increased frailty due to having more than one geriatric impairment showed improvement by decreasing their geriatric burden over the course of venetoclax therapy. Moreover, most of the patients with a high geriatric burden experienced similar improvements in quality of life over time as patients with low baseline burden. These findings lead to the conclusion that certain geriatric assessments in CLL patients at baseline, such as reduced walking speed, loss of strength, or nutritional problems, are driven by the underlying hematological disease and not simply caused by aging and chronic comorbidity. Importantly, this makes them responsive to anti-leukemic treatment, including treatment with targeted CLL drugs. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Low-Density Lipoprotein Promotes Microvascular Thrombosis by Enhancing Von Willebrand Factors Self-Association by Dominic Chaonga from the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, and colleagues. Von Willebrand factor, or VWF, is a multimeric plasma glycoprotein that plays a key role in primary hemostasis. In response to vascular injury, VWF recruits platelets to the site of injury and forms the initial platelet plug. This stage is followed by thrombin generation and fibrin clot formation. Newly secreted VWF consists of ultra-large multimers, which are typically converted to smaller, less adhesive multimers by the plasma metalloprotease atom TS13. The extent of VWF self-association into ultra-large multimers is influenced by the dynamics between atom TS13-mediated cleavage and binding of VWF multimers to each other. Once the rate of VWF self-association exceeds cleavage, the stage is set for accumulation of thrombi and potentially ischemia and infarction. The authors previously observed that high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, and its major apolipoprotein A1 decrease VWF self-association. An inverse correlation has also been observed between HDL and levels of hyperadhesive VWF in patients with thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura and sepsis. The goal of the current study was to assess the role of low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, on VWF self-association under shear stress. The authors conducted a series of experiments 
using human VWF purified from cryoprecipitate to assess shear-induced VWF self-association in tubes and in microfluidic devices. Murine models were used to study the role of LDL in thrombotic microangiopathy, as well as ionophore-provoked microvascular thrombosis. Finally, mass spectrometry was employed to quantify the extent of VWF cleavage by Adam TS-13. Experiments using vortexed tubes revealed that HDL attenuates VWF surface adsorption and self-association in a concentration-dependent manner. Conversely, the addition of various amounts of LDL to a stable concentration of HDL progressively enhanced VWF surface adsorption and self-association. The findings from experiments conducted in microfluidic devices using purified components and citrated plasma were similar. Namely, greater LDL to HDL ratios led to enhanced accumulation of VWF fibers. Human plasma, affected by hypercholesterolemia, also showed accelerated VWF accumulation in the microfluidic device, with the rate of accumulation increasing linearly with the LDL to HDL ratio. These findings suggest that the LDL to HDL ratio, and not the concentration of lipoprotein particles, plays the key role in regulating VWF self-association. Experiments in Adam TS-13 knockout and Adam TS-13 knockout LDLR double knockout mice reveal that high LDL levels enhanced VWF and platelet adhesion to myocardial vasculature, thereby impairing systolic function, reducing cardiac perfusion, and leading to early signs of cardiomyopathy. In wild-type mice, high plasma LDL concentrations increased the size and persistence of VWF platelet thrombi in ionophore-treated mesenteric microvessels. The authors concluded that their latest findings may have significant implications in the treatment of disorders with defective microvascular circulation, such as atherosclerosis, and suggest that targeting the VWF-LDL interaction may be a potential therapeutic strategy in these conditions. In an accompanying commentary, Carl Dash from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, notes that the findings of Chaonga and collaborators confirm the accumulation of hypercoagulable forms of VWF in the setting of elevated LDL to HDL ratios. These findings suggest that LDL may play a causal role in myocardial infarction and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, by increasing the propensity to form hypercoagulable forms of self-associated VWF, a potential connection between VWF accumulation and TTP was previously observed in a mouse model, where infusion of purified HDL reduced thrombocytopenia after VWF injection into ADAM-TS13-deficient mice. Although questions remain about the extent of involvement of self-associated VWF in the pathogenesis of myocardial infarction and TTP, the current study proposes a plausible mechanism whereby the propensity to form a prothrombotic form of VWF is enhanced by plasma LDL. Desch concludes that additional studies are needed to make a more definitive causal connection between LDL and other conditions associated with endothelial cell activation, such as malaria, sickle cell disease, and TTP. 
for a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.